and welcome to Frock Flicks, the historical costume movie podcast. I'm your host, Tristan L. Bass, and I'm here with our original Broadway recording cast of... Sarah Lorraine. Kendra Van Cleave. And today we are podcasting about the movie Dangerous Liaisons from 1988. Woohoo! Yay! Huzzah! So, um, but before we dive into this movie, which is a true costume classic, a uh, modern classic, um, which I'm sure many of you have seen, well, let's give a shout out to our fans and friends and supporters on Patreon, uh, Elizabeth Ferguson and Susie, who are, are some of our supporters on Patreon. And we'll talk about how you can support Frock Flicks later on in this podcast. And if you want to get a shout out, you can do so by supporting us on Patreon. We really appreciate your support. It helps us um, uh, keep our web hosting going, um, helps us keep uh, the podcasting equipment uh, going, and we really, really appreciate that. But let's dive into the podcast, and we're going to start with a little background on the costume designer for this amazing film. So the costume designer is James Aitchison, uh, and he his his work primarily that he was known for before he did uh, Dangerous Liaisons was, of course, The Last Emperor, which won him an Academy Award for Best Costume Design um, the year before Dangerous Liaisons came out. Uh, and of course, before that, he was also known for his Doctor Who work, <laughs> his classic Woo! Doctor Who work. Um, but he uh, he was brought into this uh, by the director and uh, Stephen Frears. Um, and apparently, one of the most interesting things about his work here, uh, reading an interview with him that was done in 1989, uh, is that there was very little budget and there was very little time for them to execute the costumes in the uh, in the movie. And of course, we look at this movie as sort of the gold standard for 18th century costuming, uh, just because it's so lavish and so lush and so well-fitted and well-designed. Testify. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that it, uh, it it came as a surprise when reading and, you know, doing, doing the homework before we did this podcast that... Uh, that they apparently only shot in about nine or ten weeks. They had nine or ten weeks to shoot because they were trying to get the film finished and out uh, before the end of the year in order to qualify for the Oscars for uh, February 1989 um, Oscars. And uh, and so I think the, the film got released in late 88. Um, and the other reason was that um, Milos Forman, um, I'm sorry, yeah, Milos Forman's uh, version Valmont was actually being filmed at the same time. And Valmont had twice the budget and 26 weeks uh to shoot <laughs> so they were really trying to push it and trying to get it out there before uh before valmont was released um and it's interesting too because having watched valmont and one of the things uh that that my critique personally with valmont is that it's very costumey it doesn't <laughs> look like they it, you know the costume designer invested as much energy um, and so to find out that it was, it seemed like it was the reverse with the less budget and the shorter amount of time, um, for Aitchison to pull these costumes off, uh, made it even more impressive, um, in my opinion. Um, let's see. He, uh, he also notes that he held back in designing for, uh, Dangerous Liaisons, which was another surprise because again, we look at this as an example of how lavish and over the top 18th century costumes can be in historical movies. Um, he says, quote, there's a richness there, but it's controlled. 
Costumes in the paintings of Boucher and Fragonard are more elaborate, but we chose not to do it because you don't want to give an actor something so elaborate that he has to act out of it. And I personally wonder if he had to be more lavish, what in the world would it look like? (laughs) (laughs) Fairy wings and things that lit up. Right. You know, (laughs) I I mean, the costumes in this are just as elaborate and lavish as you can possibly get. Uh, So I was surprised to find that as well, that he, he, he said that he was purposefully under underplaying it. That said, the the year before he had won the Oscar for best costume for the last emperor, which depicts the last few years of the Emperor of China. And we, we have a review of that on, on frockflix.com and there's some pictures and you can see that that is extremely lavish. I mean, it's, it, it is a step more lavish than Dangerous Liaisons in, at least as far as the number of the, the textiles and the amount of embroidery and, you know, uh, the, the, the pomp and circumstance. So, Maybe he's comparing the two. I think that's probably likely um, because he goes on to to mention that uh, in addition to only having three and a half weeks to execute all of the costumes to research and do the costumes. (laughs) I need a a lay down. (laughs) I can't even begin. It takes me three and a half weeks to think about a starting to cut a costume. out to cut out no, a no, no, no 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 to begins thinking about maybe i'm gonna make a costume in another three and a half weeks <laughs> after the three and a half weeks of thinking about it yes so so yeah having only three and a half weeks to research uh the costumes <laughs> and then of course the execution uh, apparently he would stay up late nights and of course be sewing on something the night before that it was intended to be filmed uh, he mentions that the fabric that he had to use or the things that he had to do to get the right look, uh, because finding those fabrics were so difficult, and they still are to this day, 28 years later, um, <laughs> that uh, they re- they resorted to um, sari fabrics. They also, uh, they did mention that the sari fabrics were individually woven, so I don't know if they really sourced these. You know, they may have gone to different or, or more extreme lengths to source the uh the sari fabrics rather than just go down to the local sari shop and pull whatever was out. Um, but I did say, you know, notice that when uh, many of the principled characters uh, were wearing things that um, costumes made out of fabrics that were actually identifiable as luxury silk damasks. And I mean, we identified, of course, the Scalamander strawberry um, uh, damask that is, it's well known. It's shown up in Marie Antoinette. It's, it's a very well known uh, design that's been around for, I guess, several decades now. Um, part of Scalamander's sort of basic, <laughs> basic um, <laughs> core. default core line yes. of fabrics. Um, so I can't, I can't exactly buy into this that they just had to like source things willy nilly from wherever they could grab it because they, you know, it, that doesn't seem to hold true necessarily with the principal cast. That said, said there are times where you can see that there are definitely sorry fabrics being used, but they're really nice sorry fabrics. They're, they're very. very- Yep. Very subtle. Yeah. They're not what you picture a sari fabric being with the, mm-hmm. you know, the woven metallic sprigs and the obvious border. So. Right. So definitely. I thought, yeah, that was just the, that interesting little side bit where he said, oh, we couldn't find the right fabrics. So therefore we had to use sari fabrics. Oh, and that's the other thing. They couldn't find the right laces. Of course, he, he, he made this comment in this interview 
that uh, he had to he had to resort to Victorian and, and Edwardian laces, and he hoped that no one would notice and you know make it a big deal about it. And who knows, you know, like here's here's us thirty years later. Our entire blog is based around this premise of catching things like that, and it's so subtle. <laughs> it's not like Joanne polyester lace. To me, yeah, no, exactly. First off, we were joking through the whole movie yeah. of scoffing. Oh my God, I can't believe he used Victorian lace. I mean, to me, if you even use like, it's vintage from the 60s. I'm like, you get points, you get credit because it looks, okay, maybe you need to go a 20s, little earlier, 20s. Like 20s. Okay, 20s. whatever. <laughs> but the point is, if you went with vintage, that would be great because that has a better quality, deeper richness, blah, blah, blah. So yeah. the fact that they just used antique lace, I'm happy. Yes. yes. You know, exactly. I'm not, of course, I'm sure someone out there is a lace expert and is rolling in their grave, uh, but I'm not. Well, and there's there's a huge difference between, say, you know, if this were a 16th century production, that lace versus 18th century versus 19th century, there's there's bigger gaps and and I just I feel like he's 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 kind of bending over himself backwards to say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't use it perfectly, precisely to the period, but you know he did a damn good job. And I think that that's the that's the thing that endears him to me now yes. as as a costume designer because he knew. 30 years ago that there were going to be assholes like us <laughs> looking at this and thinking, I can't believe he used Victoria, you know, but that, but the, uh, the actual reality is like Tristan just said, there's less of a gap between 1780 or 1760 and 1850, 1860, you know, yeah. that in terms of technique, in terms of design, it's natural fibers. It's all done by hand. It doesn't look machine produced and it's not polyester. So right. <laughs> I'm going to let it slide. Sure. I, you know. And I think, you know, so we're going to go and maybe we'll go by character by character um, about the costumes. But I want to say that overall, I feel like this has held up. This was done in the 1980s. And here we're sitting in 19... No, no, sorry, 2016. You know, I'm really bad at numbers, but we're sending, as as Sarah said, 28 years later, a whole millennial person later, and (laughs) some um, of you weren't even born when this was made. Yeah, I'm the ancient person on this on this staff here, and um, you know, we're sitting here. That I saw this in the theaters. Scary. I don't. I don't see any movies in the theaters today these days. But I saw this in the theaters, and there. And we're we're watching this here now, and it's held up. It's held up amazingly well. And not just costumes. The acting, the sets, <sighs> the the production values, the the decor. I mean, all the dialogue. Of it. I mean, everything. It, it could have come out yesterday. It's, it's it's that good. It's gorgeous. It's really held up amazingly well, and. I just, you know, there are a lot of films you can't say that about, um, both for the costume and for the story and, and just really everything. It's it's just amazing. So we'll just get that off <laughs> right in the top, and then we'll go through maybe some specific costumes, or go maybe by character character. Um, and I, I have a feeling this is going to be a lot of praise and very little nitpicks. And if the nitpicks, what nitpicks we have are going to be tiny infinitesimal and and honestly it's we're gonna have to dig for those victorian lace yeah i mean let's (laughs) let's just say from the get-go 
this movie is 99.9999999% perfect. We can talk about the few little, you know, warbles or whatever, or, oh, eek, looked like they had to, to you know, shave a corner off there. But, but the thing is, is unless you really look extra hard and have seen it 10 times, you don't even see those things. I mean, this really is, Sarah called it the gold standard for 18th century, and it absolutely is. Now, the one thing um, I think is worth mentioning is that the novel... I believe came out in 1781. Isn't that what you were saying, Sarah? It said it was based in 1781. That it okay. was, yeah, it may have been published in 1781, but the thing that I read said it was supposed to be based in, in 1781. Right. Well, this is very much not costumed in that era. It's very much, uh, I would say, early 60s, uh, 1760s. Um, and I was thinking about our Bell podcast where we were talking about how that similarly was supposed to be set in the 1780s, but costumed in the 1760s. But this I actually don't mind because these are all fictional people. Bell was portraying actual people who lived in actual times. I think when it's fictional, it's fine to, you know, maybe putting it in 1700 would be too different of a sort of cultural changes or Obviously, you can't put it in 1850. There's nothing Victorian about this. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but to me, I'm fine with that. And uh, they so wholeheartedly stuck to the era. Hair, you know, fabrics, styles, all those kinds of things are very to a T early 1760s. I will say that they actually did adapt this, though, for modern times. I mean, this was the adaptation of, uh, uh, what was it called? Um Oh, you mean Cruel Intentions. Cruel Intentions. So it, it's yeah. adaptable. And I think there was a previous one, too, that was, uh, I can't remember now what era it was set in, but it was not a 17th or 1800s or 18th century uh, production, but it was something that was set in another time period. But those are adaptations based on it. So it's a, it's a story that essentially is timeless and kind of, you can make it work for different different eras, different types of characters, different types of scenarios. But yeah, for this period, I mean, 1760s versus 1780s, as I long mean, as they're consistent, you know. I mean, there's some there's some differences. Obviously, 1780s is right before the revolution, um, and in some ways, I can kind of see the the end where people are kind of judgy of Madame. Oh God, I'm forgotten. Martil. Martil's mm-hmm. character, um, maybe because of the sort of you know the sense that the hedonism has gone too far. Um, Maybe that would work a teensy bit more. I so don't know. But I, I will just say, I thought Cruel Intentions was terrible, and I didn't think that this this story worked in a modern scenario at all. Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, the the story, the machinations between the different different people about the, you know, the different sexual uh, politics, it doesn't have a historical hook in, in that it's not predicated on political actions it doesn't it doesn't hook into you know who's king or queen who's you know on what the you know different states are doing it's it's all about it's it's set in a particular time but it's not super connected to that time so whether it's in you know 1760 or 1780 doesn't matter specifically because it doesn't reference those times it's timeless yeah well, it's not necessarily it, timeless, but it's, it's not super hooked into those times. It's based on the society and culture of, yeah. this, of the second half of the 18th century. And right. Time. Yeah. But it's not, it's, it's not 1772 yeah. or whatever. Yeah. It, that doesn't matter so much. Yeah. One of the things we should mention, of course, is that 
this story is based on a book, but the movie specifically is based on a play. So there was a play True. adaptation first, and then the movie was drawn directly from that True. play. And the guy who did the adaptation for the play actually did the screenplay as well. Uh, and he exactly. changed things, but it was, you know, mostly things that needed to be changed in order to, you know, translate from stage to film. Uh, and apparently there were some reworkings uh, that tightened it up a lot more, tightened the script up a lot more. Um, but yeah, so same guy who did the play did the, the screenplay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, shall we go through some of the major characters? So we'll start with uh, Glenn Close, who plays the Marquise, and she sets everything in motion. She has, um, you know, she's been, she and uh, Glenn, uh, she and, John Malkovich. John Malkovich's character have been lovers. Valmont have been lovers in the past, and he's kind of wanting to strike something up. But she wants to make a deal with him first to make it interesting. Uh, and she really, the very first scene is, of course, each of them getting dressed, mm. which mm-hmm. is it's so great. I mean, it's great for this movie and these characters, but it's so. I, I think. Okay, first off, it's historical costume nerds. We all love it. and I th- But I think we'd love it in any era. But for this particular era, with the luxuriousness and the opulence and, and showing just how aristocratic they are, where they're just standing there and people are running around doing things for them, which, please, where do I sign up for? <laughs> um, but also, too, especially with the women's clothing, I mean, I know for me, and I've heard many other people say that this that scene helped them understand how this era's costumes were put together because you see them flip up the back of the Frances to tighten the lining underneath and, you know, things like that. So I, I just think it's, it's absolutely critical to, to showing the level of artifice in this culture. And, uh, and interestingly enough, there is a quote from James Aitchison, again, saying, it's an attempt to show two people dressing for battle. This is a ritual of dressing, as if they are putting on armor like a samurai warrior. It's the whole idea of protection and presentation as they present themselves in an extraordinarily controlled image. It's the only time we see them with their servants. After that, they are left alone with each other. Which is not really true. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of scenes where the servants are mm-hmm. around, but it's the only scene where the servants directly really interact with them. True. Um, yeah. And also there's an interesting parallel to Outlander, where in that first scene mm. where uh, Claire is, uh, not the first scene, but the dressing scene early on when Claire is back in the 18th century, helping to sort of orient Claire and the viewer to the period. This, I think again i think orients is more for the viewer but really orients you to the period and just how different i mean because it it holds through throughout the how controlled everyone is what you're saying sarah about the armor but just how controlled and how i mean they're having these like essentially knock down drag out fights or heartbreak or whatever and but they're doing it all so carefully and oh it's so great (laughs) Okay, I'm done. I just, I, I, there, yeah, I'm just going to rant at points about no, how fine. good this is. And that's, that's what, you know, the, the costume really plays a strong part in this movie because it sets, it's the stage dressing, it's the set dressing, it's, it says things about the characters in ways, you know, in, in, in so many ways that, you know, because... You know, obviously, many it happens in many movies, but I feel like this movie, you know, did it before everybody else did, <laughs> in, in a lot of ways, at least, you know, for in the modern times. 
obviously there was, you know, you go back, there was, you know, Gone with the Wind or whatever. But in the modern times, for a lot of us coming up, you know, in costume and in, you know, being impressionable and thinking, this is how it's done. This is how you do it. And seeing the first scenes, you know, she's in her corset and she puts the, 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 the hoops are being put on him and he's getting the wig put on and powdered and every, every little bit. This is how it's done. And everything from this point on, from 1988 on, that's how costume is done. Or it should be done. Or it should be done. And because we all in, invariably, I know I do, um, kind of take it and look at this as, as the, the ultimate, you know, how it should be done, how costume should be portrayed in film. Uh, and then when it doesn't work out that way, <laughs> it's this huge disappointment because yes. it's like, well, Dangerous Liaisons was wildly successful and they went to great, ex- you know, great extent to make the costumes believable and real and, you know, have layers upon layers of things that looked realistic um, why can't we do that now? Why is this suddenly just this, this weird line that we can't cross anymore? Like, people can't relate to it. Well, and also, I mean, I think we will get back to talking character by character. Clearly, we have a few <laughs> more big picture thoughts. Um, and one of them is, I think, you know, one of the things we do on our blog, of course, is point out when things are maybe historically accurate, inaccurate, whatever. Um, but also just when things are crappy, when not, not enough money was spent or enough time or something was badly made or just shitty fabric, whatever. And I think that this is a great example of matching your budget to the scope of the project because it's a very limited cast. And you have a couple of characters who have to be dressed opulently. Then you've got a few characters who need you know, something of a wardrobe. And then you have a couple of servants. And so they're able to... to focus their attention where need be, not worry about costuming lots of extras, that sort of thing. And the other thing I want to point out, and we can get more into the gradations of this, but I love with a, a few intensely tiny quibbles, they manage to differentiate characters while still staying historically accurate. So many times people are like, oh, but you're not going to know that that's the ingenue or that that's the evil person. <laughs> and I can talk, think of like Marie Antoinette, the 2006 movie, yeah. which I adore, but where... Um, Dewberry is dressed oh. in these fabulous, gorgeous, super gothy, random outfits. Yes. And and I get they're trying to differentiate her character. And of course, it's a bigger scope picture. But still, in this movie, they're able to do those differentiations and still keep it within a historically accurate world. Yeah. So should we talk about the Marquis? Yes. Who has the most opulent costumes of all of everyone as she should be i mean so she she is aristocracy and valmont is too they both have titles but i don't none of the other characters have titles am i right no it's because of madame de tourvel and madame Uh, Madame, uh, yeah madame de volange right etc okay and obviously you know so on multiple levels she's also you know clearly the the scheming brain of things all that kind of stuff but the level of opulence on her costumes um I yeah with uh, you know again a few a few teensy little quibbles uh just amazing there's really rich fabrics I'm thinking of the final confrontation scene with Valmont in that beautiful white dress that's a tone on tone um damask but then with stunning trims and embroidery and you know then you've got her yellow outfit with the it, it, everything is just <laughs> luxe and lush and 
embroidered and trimmed and the fit is divine and it's so good oh my god I just I need a lay down I was gonna mention too that that white dress at the end is the dress that Madonna wore for the VMA performance in what 1990 yes 91 something like that yeah so Vogue Vogue yes the infamous Vogue MTV uh, Music Awards. Yeah, the VMAs. Right. Tristan's yeah. doing oh, the right. dance. No, yeah, the Video Music Awards. Okay, yeah. yeah Tristan yeah. knows the dance by heart. Tristan. If you've ever been to, to costume college. You've seen Tristan do the dance. During the gala, <laughs> uh, there's Tristan. It's doing a highlight. No matter what I'm dressed as, I'll do that dance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you've seen, the, you've, if, if you've seen the dress. You know it is. All of you, I know you've seen it. Um, but she also has a dress that's um, a, a take on the um, Madame de Pompadour painting. The that's the... Um, turquoisey blue with the little flowers and the bows tons of pink roses all over uh, it. she she has a, a series of dresses she has the the red dress um trimmed in silver uh, but um, amazing like the, tarnished silver tarnished, you can tell those are vintage trims yeah, so you don't get that color be. anymore uh, she has uh, you know i don't even know i lost count you can't count how, well, maybe someone can count i'm sure Jane i'm Jackson sure has count <laughs> or had count at the time of how many gowns she has. I think there's literally one gown that I was not thrilled by, but the other two were thrilled by. It was kind of a biscuit colored and it was um, it's a little more tailored and, and it wasn't as frilly as the others. But, but it has this stunning orange stomacher and yeah. petticoat and then the trimming. It's the trimmings it's, that kill me because they're variegated and sort of the centers are yeah. that same sort of beigey color. But as you get out to the edges, yeah. it's a little fringed and you get into that orange um, and yeah, yeah. Still, all the trims were amazing, and also some of the candlelight scenes, you would see all of the spangles. They would pick up the candlelight so perfectly, and that gives you that. It reminds you that uh, in the 18th century, yes, everything was by candlelight at night, and that's why you had spangles or metallic trims, because they would pick that up and it would look beautiful and might maybe look a little gaudy if you see it in a museum or you you know see it but imagine it by candlelight and you know she'd walk by in candlelight and oh it's beautiful and you really haven't seen i was telling the two of them i was recently at a costume event where a woman was wearing a spangled dress and uh, metallic spangles and the event was only lit by candles and we were shocked at how beautifully flickery glinty it was and it was it wasn't something you, you see every day it was so yeah the, the use of spangles and metallics in this was stunning and uh, I want to go back to the Boucher uh, dress the uh, the blue dress with the um, Rose pompadour. pompadour the pompadour dress it was by yes. the artist Boucher uh, there's actually a couple of different uh, Boucher references which my little art historian heart just thought was the greatest thing but of course the most famous is the uh, is the uh, the blue dress with the pink rosettes on it and uh, and you don't really see it that often or that well in the yeah. film it's the the stills of it there are photographs of it out there where she's obviously been posed for you know production stills or whatever promotional purposes where you can see it in far better detail but it, it's it's this very dark blue with these bright pink roses on it um and i that one i kind of was a little iffy on just in the sense that i don't find that dark blue to be a 18th century blue <laughs> i agree and it's such a harsh contrast it with is. the pink roses versus the source portrait where it's much more of a medium Teal. slightly tealy yeah. blue uh, but I mean, like again, that's like the level of nitpicking I have. To yeah, I know <laughs> it's yeah. not the right color of blue. The shade is slightly <laughs> off. Yeah, 
But there are other dresses, too, mm-hmm. that reference yeah. um, other paintings of Madame de Pompadour by mm-hmm. Boucher. There's another dress and uh, that has the, the wider puffed sleeve that you really don't see a ton of. There are two different portraits um, of pompadour wearing these and yeah and there's one is one is a high neck and i have to say valmont did a version of it terribly um and in they they do one though that's a lower neck and it's slightly shinier um and it's an unusual style and they definitely on madame the the marquise yeah oh no no no, it's not the marquise Marquise. uh it's uh michelle pfeiffer's character oh you're right yeah Yeah. okay all right that's a weird one is one is actually there's two one is on uma thurman's character um, and it's a low neck it's yellow and it looks really weird it's another one that's a little eh, but it's right when you know what the portrait it's referencing is um, and then the other one is on Michelle Pfeiffer's character. Right, it's a little bit more concert. subdued. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do have to say, every time I see those puffy sleeves, I think, huh? And then I remember those, like, two portraits of Madame de Pompadour. And I'm sure there are others from the 1750s right. and 60s in France specifically that have that style. And my, my understanding is that was considered a Spanish style. Mm-hmm. And it was so, sort of like a... A uh, yieldy, timey um, Renaissance revival kind of thing, but I'm still not sure exactly how the hell that works. But th- I think <laughs> that's what I've seen in 18th century sources. Anyway, onward. so so since we're mentioning uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's character to Ma- Madame de Volange, um, one thing that was interesting is that she's supposed to be very, she's the goody two shoes. Let's put it that way. She's the goody two shoes. She's very pure and righteous and all that. And the gist is that Valmont's gonna corrupt her. Um, she starts out wearing uh, all these little uh, fichus, fichus and chemisettes that are covered up in the in the neck, neck, neck area, Decolletage. bust area. <laughs> um, that are straight out of portraits. They're these yeah. sheer organza with a, a vertical ruffle right up the center front and then around the neck. And you see them in tons of portraits. Yeah. But you never see them in movies. So no. it's kind of, it's nice. It's a, it's a good way of, of showing in a historically accurate fashion that, you know, she's covered up, she's proper, she's, you know, it differentiates her from all the other women who are very much, you know, tits out. <laughs> Which is funny too, though, since they're transparent, they actually aren't really concealing yeah. much, but well, they have a barrier there. Yes. Well, and that's what I, I think the ruffle, because it hides a little bit of the cleavage yeah. and we associate ruffles with, you know, a little bit more prissy. But again, I love that they took something. One of the things I love and that we should talk more about the Marquise's wardrobe, but that I love that they did with Michelle Pfeiffer's wardrobe is they made her comparatively sort of a little simpler, her class level a little lower um, and a little more conservative. But again, they did it in an 18th century style. She's still wearing makeup. She's wearing these sheer chemisettes that are appropriate to the period. You know, they didn't, they didn't, you know, put her in a little Miss Muffet outfit or something like <laughs> a lot of costumers were. Oh, well, because people won't get that. She, you can, we're not idiots. People <laughs> yeah. can see subtle gradations. Yes. You know, and, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but like Susie Kurtz's uh, character, yes. Madame de Volange, she's, uh, her colors are a little bright and a little theatrical. And it's not, it's nothing egregious, but you can see that and you can see, ah, she's a little lower in class than, and a little more maybe new money than the Marquise, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah. I mean, you get these subtle gradations. You don't get, oh, she's, you know, prissy. So she has to be in 
plain, you know, sackcloth and ashes, you know, she doesn't... Turning butter in yeah, the corner. She, yeah, yeah, I'm just thinking about those, uh, the, the war and peace. Uh, oh. <laughs> you know, the, the calico prints. And the, yeah. The dowdy. Uh, exactly. Come on. Come on. Yeah. Really? No. Yeah. Yeah, so it's it's done well. It's done accurately, and she still she still has money. She still she would still be socializing with these people, uh, you know. And and she's she's hanging out at uh, Valmont's aunt's house. So no, she doesn't ever go there. No, that's yeah. She's hanging out with his aunt. That's why he goes there. Oh, I'm sorry. We're on to Michelle Pfeiffer's character. Michelle's, sorry, thank yeah, you, Michelle Madame Pfeiffer's. de Tourvel. Tourvel. Yeah. Thank you. So she's hanging out with the, at his aunt's house. And, and so, you know, who's clearly titled, if he's titled, uh, there's titles there somewhere. And, and so she's hanging out with these people that are, you know, hoity-toity. And so she's not going to be wearing, you know, bullshit, you know? <laughs> not her, a Holly Hobby dress. Yeah. yeah. So, so, but, but she's covered up because she's all, you know, chaste and pure. That's Well, that's and it. her florals are a little sweeter. Yeah. You know, um... And she wears, like, she wears the pet and lair, which yeah. is the jacket version of exactly. the Francaise. And things that, again, they're just, they're slightly more informal, and they're a little bit sweeter compared to Marquise de Mertaille. I'm totally pronouncing that wrong. It's one of those names that kills me. Um, who's very luxe and uh, rich and always in really heavy fabrics with, metallics yes. and layered trimmings and all that kind of stuff. And, and the caps, like uh, Tourvel always has these little caps under her hats, which uh, the Marquise will never wear because that's so provincial. Uh, <laughs> but shout out because, again, the caps, sorry, it's a pet peeve with me. First of all, I just hate caps. Yeah, caps Secondly, <laughs> they're yes, they're linen, but they have stunning lace on oh. them. They have bows. She's often wearing a straw hat with fabulous trimmings on top uh she's not taking a sorry colonial williamsburg uh i'm you know working at the dairy farm cap and throwing it on they're class appropriate but yes by wearing the caps it differentiates yeah even indoors she'll wear a cap but it's it's almost like the marie stewart kind of caps where and it's very fine materials very delicate lots of lace you know, you can see through these caps. These are very, very, they're, they're, they're not workaday caps. These are extremely elegant, uh, fancy caps. Bits of fluff. They're very bits of fluff, um, but they are there to show that she is proper and she's prissy and she may have a stick up her ass, but she <laughs> has, you know, she has money and she can hang out with these people. Well, her husband's a judge, right? And she's yeah. she's staying with the aunt while the judge is on some big case. Right. But so clearly he's a prominent judge. Yeah. So uh, any other, the women we want to talk about before we talk about Mr. Well, we have to talk. There's so much more. I mean, I want to talk about individual costumes. Okay. Um, uh, a little a little aside, uh, Susie Kurtz is, uh, she's the, again, she's the Madame de Volange. Um, she is wearing in the scene in the opera, the very first opera scene that is shown um she's got a court dress on and it's it's a lovely court dress it's just kind of inappropriate for the opera yeah it's a bit overdressed Um, absolutely overdressed for the opera you know given that she is 
sort of the new money sort of trying to overcompensate maybe that you know you can make I, an argument either way i took that as they didn't have enough wardrobe <laughs> Shit, we gotta put her in something uh, i also do want to point out though that that was also reused in the uh in in the video for walking on the broken glass <laughs> by annie lennox, by annie yes. lennox which yes. we've covered on on frock flicks yeah. um so yeah i mean and it's a beautiful dress it's actually uh, another yeah. one of those very interesting styles um laces up the back which brings me into another issue that we kind of noticed um it was teeny uma thurman's uh cecile um she was wearing the again the scalamander strawberries fabric we um, hate to break it to you yeah it <laughs> laces up the back spiral lace no grommets it's the only one but yes it's inappropriate back lacing yeah but it's not a style you, know, that you can be you barely you can barely you barely it. see it we, we spotted it it's yeah. pretty yeah. it is it's a pretty dress yeah. apparently though that fabric unravels like a son of a bitch. Oh, good to know. Okay. That. That's Warning. one thing that keeps me away from, you know, actually dropping $6,000 on yes. <laughs> That's the only thing that keeps her away from Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, um, a couple of other things. Let, let's try and stay on the marquees. What do we think about the, I think the yellow and black traveling outfit Meh. is very famous. Um, and I think that the, the black in particular it's... elevates it and makes it very, very chic, but... It's, dr- thoughts, it's dramatic. I mean, it really, for me, it's the scene more than the dress. I mean, I think that having that dramatic scene where she's making the faces, really, where she's like, I know this is shit. Oh, I'm so sympathetic. <laughs> this is bullshit. And, and, and doing the faces, her, 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 her turnabout faces, because she knows what's going on. She's totally in on this. And she's doing that in this dramatic dress that's the striking yellow and black. That's what makes the scene, and the costume makes the scene more dramatic. The costume itself, if it were in just another scene, wouldn't be so much, so very interesting. Well, it also would be jarring because in a way it is so different from pretty much everything else worn in the film. It's one of the few really strong striking color combinations yeah but i also think that that works in terms of it being a traveling outfit i I think again it works for that scene because you need you know she's she's playing a dual role there and to have this really striking outfit while she's doing the double takes back and forth where she's practically looking at the audience and saying (laughs) you know what i'm doing here yeah this is what i'm doing here (laughs) and doing it in that super dramatic outfit i have to say works. it's it's not my favorite dress i think it, it gets a lot of attention and in, in the costuming world because uh, it is a fabulous outfit and it's incredibly striking uh but i think in terms of all the other outfits that, that are shown that the marquise wears it's probably my least favorite um i do like the fact that it's this big bright fuck you yellow <laughs> which really does as tristan was just saying it really does underscore <laughs> you know that she's She's pulling no punches. I mean, she really, she, she's showing one side of her face, but you know, the audience knows. The audience is in on the joke. And, and she's very bold and she's very brash and you, you get it. Um, but yeah, I think in terms of, of the costume itself, it's, it is not one of my favorites. And I love yellow. Yellow is one of my favorite colors for costuming. Well, you're lucky because you can wear it. Yeah. And that's the other thing too. It's a bold color to wear. It's, it's a, it's a hard a, color. A hard color for a but lot it, of people but it to does, pull off. But it does reference some, you know, a, a classic, uh, 18th century combination, yellow with the black accents. Uh-huh. Um, it, again, it, it works for the scene. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would have a place in elsewhere in her wardrobe. Right. I think pretty much... Uh, so I agree with Sarah that the the 
Madame de Pompadour blue and rose dress that the the blue is a little too dark um, and I hear what you guys are saying about the yellow and black the one other dress that I have a slight quibble with for the Marquise is in the very last scene she also wears a court dress to the opera for the last scene where she gets booed and it looks it the fit isn't great it looks a little small maybe on her or something and again it's weird that you wouldn't wear a court dress to the opera but other than that pretty much everything she wears floors me mm-hmm. and in its sumptuousness the stunning trend i mean they just layered trims on trims and these <laughs> serpentines and she's sitting there talking and i mean pretty much every performance in this is fabulous i mean like mesmerizing and her performance in this really is mesmerizing but i'm torn between the emotion she's conveying and then oh my god look at that spangle and that trim and (laughs) how they they fringed that edge and i mean it's yes okay so we we gotta we gotta move on here because otherwise we'll spend 14 hours on this and the movie's only like two okay so um let's let's talk about the dude no no i have uh, more girl thoughts okay a little more girl thoughts but we gotta we gotta okay we gotta get on to okay okay just which one Oh, uh, Madame de Tourvel, Michelle Pfeiffer's character. There are a couple of things that are a little chintzy. She's got this peach dress that's very slubby chantung. And there are a couple of times where she gets... That's the compere front one with the buttons. Yeah, where she gets a little, like, gaspy and needs air. So they unbutton her her button front compare uh, stomacher. And they make it seem as though that's loosening her corset and allowing her to breathe. And at one point, it really looks like the dress itself is boned. And that just doesn't make sense from an 18th century perspective. You would never do that. You would have stays and then the gown over it. So that always confuses me. Um, And there are a couple other dresses where the fabric's a little light um, and they seem like maybe they are those sorry fabrics. Um, But these are just teensy, teensy little quibbles. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. 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 Um. And again, I just, uh, uh, Madame de Volange's, uh, a few of her color combinations, a little, oh, yeah. a teensy bit bright. Yeah. And like I will say, Kurtz, by the way. about 50% of the costumes having contrasting dress within a different color for the stomacher and petticoat. That was much more of an English style. The French really liked the everything in one fabric, but I can deal. Oh, I mean, I, that's that's such a minor quibble. I have a, a another thing to add in, though, with Suzy Kurtz. Uh, she does wear, uh, again, it is one of those gowns that we picked out as kind of a really not 18th century color palette but it has this gorgeous fan uh this is the the magenta the magenta it's a magenta dress green petticoat yeah and which is not really a color combination you would see probably in the 18th century too much um you'd see it in kind of a more pastel not in quite a you know bold magenta green um but the like i was saying though the stomacher has this beautiful um fan uh ruching pleating kind of embellishment on it that is just outstanding and you barely (laughs) see the petticoat but it actually has these Mm. pleated triangles of maybe organza or something i think the same color or it's really sheer that are sort of placed Mm. along it and that is really luke's one random little thing too is just uh the marquise that fabulous red dress has palm trees on it it does yeah yeah Yeah. Uh, well okay they're they're palm tree-esque okay let's just say if you look if you stare at them too long you'll probably see palm trees um, do I get to talk about hair? Or okay, no, we wait, will. We will the... because okay. because we're gonna talk. We gotta talk about Valmont. Yes. Okay. John Malkovich, hot. Hey. Oh. 
a little ra- no, very rapey. Um, yeah, yeah. The, this movie hot. is the patriarchy. Okay, we decided. yeah. And this movie has made me have very conflicted feelings about like why is it so hot when he's so rapey? So, we're we're so all rapey. very conflicted. Uh, about this. We, yes, we have we raised some very conflict big conflictions. So conflicts so if ourselves. you haven't seen this movie recently, watch it again and notice if okay. Most of our audience is female, so just watch it again and realize, yeah, Valmont is pretty much raping Cecile. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. Until she succumbs. Until she likes it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) How do you feel about that? Yeah. Not so good. We're not really good about that. (laughs) And he he gets too abusive with when he breaks up with Madame de Torvel. Actually, even when he gets to like it with Torvel... And that's kind of that's kind of creepy too. Yeah, but especially with Cecile. I mean, he really rapes her multiple times. But yeah, but it's horrible because it's hot. Yeah, we're, we're so fucked up. Yeah, it's this is this is the patriarchy. This is what's wrong yeah. with the society, and this is why we're all yes. going to just burn in hell. So let's talk about the okay. costumes. Costumes. Okay, <laughs> we so, feel less conflicted about those. We're not at all conflicted about the costumes. <laughs> we want them. We love them. Wait, wait. That's actually why we're conflicted about the rape yes. parts. Sorry. We can't separate the two. The, so, anyway, back to the costumes. They're hot. Um, oh, my God. But the, the layers, wings, the, 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 the metallic embroideries, the spangles, the, the fact that his coat linings match his waistcoat, Jesus. the sheerness of the linen of his cravat Jesus. with that sexy the, black the coat black that we coat. all agreed we just wanted to give a little tug to. Oh, with oh, the red-soled shoes. Ah. Oh, so. Oh, cuffs. In this one scene, he has these cuffs. cuffs. It's like a white or cream jacket with these wide cuffs cuffs with gold embroidery and maybe like fur or something. Oh my God. And every wig. He has like five different wigs or something with a little, one with a little curlicues in it and then the black wig and then the, 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 the pale wig and then the uh, uh, it's just all of it uh, I just, can I just lick him just let him Jesus. stand let me just stand him there and, and he's so yeah. perfectly powdered and his lips are just uh, a little rougey oh it's so hot I love that they went for that and and I know that I mean this movie is very much about aristocracy or that that really upper class uh you know etc but I love that they went there and uh-huh. gave him makeup because it's so hot. We all love it. He has these curly little eyelashes. Oh, I just, yes. they were very, very yes. nice. Uh, but we, I will, uh, we, we are all very good. Conf- we have some conflict going we on. We really, yeah. We, we need therapy. We, <laughs> we don't For, know what to think. That's just one of many reasons. We don't know what to think about this, <laughs> um, except that we want his clothes at the very least. Um, I can't, yeah. him in them. I can't I pinpoint know. one particular outfit of his that I had any, any real issue with. There was one that had some heavy embroidery. Maybe it was dark blue. Oh, right. That one. That he wears in the near the end. When he breaks the, up with Yeah, uh, that Madame we Trudeau. were a little not loving, but not, yeah, I mean, this is minor. Because yeah. that embroidery was a little, it was a, it a little kind of chunkier and it was a little more floral. That said... It was still, to me, it was reminiscent of some very 18th century images. It, I mean, it looked some, like, so, you know, I could see exactly where they were going with it, even if it was just a little clunky, a little, like, maybe a bit chunkier in style than the more delicate embroidery that was on some of the earlier coats. Um, the spangles, the metallic oh embroidery. I mean, seriously. And, and things, seriously, people. If you're going to spend money, spend it on that. Yes. <laughs> 
The, so good. The waistcoats where there would just be this, be- you you see this tiny little strip of them, just little itty bitty, you know, we're talking two inches, not even, like an inch and a half. And it was embroidered or it was some beautiful rich fabric. And I'm just thinking, there's more of that. There's more of that that I can't see. OMG. Um, so his, his wigs his, were They the were hook. off the hook and perfect for the era. So he pretty much had uh, these fabulous tiny little side rolls called buckles. Um, some of them had the teensy little bit of height on the crown, which is just starting to come into fashion. And same with the women's hair, a teensy bit of height. Um, I love that you could really see the woven edge of the hairline. So they were very much wigs. I do question he had a lot of long hair himself. About half the time he's wearing his own hair um, and unpowdered, which he would much more likely have worn powdered hair or a wig. But whatever. Though I think those scenes when he was doing that were very purposefully... I'm flustered and things are going bad and or I'm fuck you or I'm yeah, I'm casual or I'm getting laid. Yeah, I'm casual or whatever. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But so yeah, fabulous. And then there was the one that had this sort of heart shape the on top cues. the with sort of curly cues in towards each other. And so most of them then had the long hair, but some of them had bag wig, which is a style I love with the really wide bow. And you see that tons and times in portraiture. It'll look like the man has short hair, but look for that wide bow at the neck. And you know, he's got a long queue, which is nice. what the long hair is called. But the bag wigs were fabulous too. Uh and these guys point out, Sarah pointed out, that um, his manservant is Peter Capaldi, currently known as Doctor Who, which I never realized when I first watched this. Yeah. And, and the two of them are hilarious. I mean, he's the comic relief in yeah. this movie, and they have some great little bits between the two of them. And it's interesting in the sense that his, uh, you know, he speaks with his, I think his natural accent. You know, compared to all the American actors in it, it stands out. <laughs> Yeah, this is, I feel like, one of those early films that decided to just let everyone do their natural accent rather than... Because normally they would make everyone put on a faux British accent for this. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's a little jarring. Uh, Malkovich occasionally seems sounds a little broad. Uh, luckily, we were very excited that Keanu Reeves, a.k.a. Ted Theodore Logan, um, <laughs> he's actually quite good in this. At, because he has about five lines. Yeah, each time it's like, I will. I do. Oh, but I love her. Thank you, monsieur. Done. <laughs> yeah, any thoughts about Keanu's costumes or look? He, yeah, he, he looks he's, great. He's just yeah. wearing stuff. He's pretty. Uh, he's cute. You know. yeah. yeah. And and I do think, though, that because he did a passable uh, job at a historical film, this was like, um, oh, no, well, let's let's cast him in, you know, Dracula and stuff. And uh... that, See, they went wrong because they gave him dialogue. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So. Uh-uh. Also, I mean, the, the only other male characters really are super minor and in the background, but I noticed, um, especially the priests and then the physician who gets called to deal with Madame de Torvel, both of them, ha- or all of them, had great wigs. Um, all the men's wigs, one thing I loved, they were powdered, so they weren't a, you could see that they were powdered. B, it was a matte color. It wasn't shiny white. But anyway, so the priest and the doctors all were wearing earlier decade styles, which is completely historically accurate because different wig styles would come into fashion and then they would become associated with a particular profession and like doctors. And then doctors would just keep wearing that style that might now be 50 years out of style because it's what doctors wear. But I was spotting styles. There was one, the doctor wearing one. I mean, it was straight out of a 1730s portrait. And I just thought that that was so great that they 
they did their research. And can I talk about the women's hair real quick? Yeah. The women's hair was fabulous, too. Um, again, it's all very early 1760s. Um, but a lot of them with the, the what's called the chignon relevé, where the back hair is um, brushed up really smoothly up to the crown of the head. Um, lots of beautiful elements, curly cues and things like that. Um, and a little bit of height. So that's what sort of puts it into the 1760s for me. Um, I loved that at one point, um, Madame de Volange has the braid up the back of the head, which I wish they'd done a little more of because you see that over and over in France in this era. Um, and my one quibble being that Susie Kurtz being a redhead would have been disgusting in this era. And I am a fellow redhead, so you know, I am team redhead, but she would have powdered her hair up the wazoo because she would have hated her hair color and so would everyone else. And that's the same thing with Glenn Close's freckles. Yeah. And they also would, I mean, they're adorable. We, and as a freckled person, I I understand the, you know, pain and heartbreak of, uh, of having to cover those Preach. freckles up every time I put on a historical costume, but it would have been probably something that, you know, the, the Marquise would have definitely focused on getting rid of. Well, she, she would have bleached her skin. She yeah. wouldn't have done anything. Or powdered they, the shit out well, of it. Well, they did a pretty good job with her face makeup. It's her chest. I, I know. You know, I can hardly notice them. I'm, maybe it's just, you know, me. I don't know. You're I'm, old. I am old. And I don't, I, I still, because I was looking for that this time around. I'm like. There's a particular shot. Maybe this, and maybe it's just the one and it's early on where she's particularly chest freckly. Okay. I'm just still noticing. So maybe it's just that one shot. Maybe they just, you know, like, oh, we did got all of them and we didn't get that one. So whatever. Again, we are nitpicking because this is such a good 18th century costume movie. And again, just, but it's historically accurate. It's the costumes are beautifully made. They manage to distinguish character and scene while still staying within the period. The the hair and the clothes and the shoes and whatever they're they're all in the same period. They're not jumping around and that stuff. I mean, it's like yeah, we're really reaching with these quibbles. And the next time I hear a, a costumer say that we couldn't make anything historically accurate because we didn't have the budget or the time, I'm going to point to this. Or that modern audiences wouldn't respond to it. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to point to this movie because this proves that you can, in all accounts, you can pull yeah. it off. I'm so seriously shocked to hear that there were time and budget limitations. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's actually funny because, so I reviewed Valmont for our website, and one of the things I found was the whole thing of, of Valmont being made at the same time and on a much... I did know that they had a bigger budget and more time. Um, but I didn't picture that Dangerous Liaisons was therefore like a budget film. On, but the point is, is there's this interview Roger Ebert does with Milos Forman, the director, and he's talking about, I haven't seen Valmont, or I haven't seen Dangerous Liaisons yet, but our movie you're going to love, you're going to see, we really took our time, and blah, blah, blah. <sighs> and I'm thinking, you are going to be so embarrassed when you see Dangerous Liaisons. Uh... Because Valmont, I mean, it looks like a high school theater production by comparison. Seriously. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Valmont, yeah. no but... offense, but it's, piece, it's a piece of shit. But really quick, back to Sarah's point, I think, again, this is such a great example of where using the historical period, and in particular the clothes, gives you a window into these characters, their world, and all of that, and I, that I think you wouldn't understand if they had gone rain, for example, and just put them in prom dresses or whatever, and yes, rain is more complicated than that, and I, I, I'm just, you know... So again, I see so many, so many 
productions claim that they have to modernize. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, people won't get it. And I would argue the flip of how are people going to get the period without... I mean, the costumes are one of the things that builds that world. I have a question. Why would you make a historical movie if you're not interested in the history? It's a, you know, it's a philosophical question. You can all ponder it and reply on our website with your answers. Yeah, rather than make, say, a fantasy movie or something. <laughs> right, right. Well, I, I think, you know, and we've, we've gone back and forth over that a, a lot. And I would just say that this, this movie shows that you can distinguish between characters in a historical fashion. You know, I think of Poldark, for example. A historical story based on historical fiction that was extremely popular the first time around and the second time around, but that strips things down very dramatic, Very jeans and t-shirt version of 18th century. Yeah, and in order to make characters appeal to a modern audience. I mean, it just does. You know, Ross Poldark looks the way he does because that's cool for 21st century audiences. But um, John Malkovich as Valmont is fucking hot. So hot. So hot because of not just what he wears, but what he does, how the character is created, and the character fits that way in those costumes, in this set, in this story. It's part and parcel. So it's not just, oh, we have to give him this haircut and this you know, five o'clock shadow because modern audiences will will understand that and have his have a shirt open because <laughs> that looks rugged and that's what modern audiences understand. No, we have to create a character that is appealing that anyone will understand in this context, in this historical context. And I and I think this movie does that with this story, and it still holds up. You know, I saw this in the theaters. When I was in college, and I was, I had the same reaction as when I'm sitting on the couch now. And I'm surely not the only one. Absolutely. And I mean, I do think you could make the argument that this, these characters are particularly upper class. And so one of the things they're trying to show you is the, the class level and the artifice that goes with it. And you could argue that something on Poldark, they're trying to make them much more seem like you and me and people we know. But I don't think that this has to be a class thing. I mean, again, I just think that the clothes are a lens into the world. And you're not going to fully understand the characters if you don't understand the world. Oh. Yeah. That they live in. Because why the hell is Queen Elizabeth I doing the shit? Why doesn't she get married? It makes no sense if you don't understand the world that she lives in. Exactly. So, um... We'll, you know, feel free to discuss this with us. You know, we enjoy, um, you know, going back and forth on this on, um, you know, on the blog, on frockflix.com, on Facebook, on Twitter. Um, if you have any feedback, let us know. We want to know. Um, we also really appreciate your support. And again, a shout out to our um, Patreon supporters, Elizabeth Ferguson and Susie. Get your Frockflix uh shout outs uh, by signing up at patreon um you what's, can also what's the patreon address uh well if you go to uh, frockflix.com and click about you can look at our support page and there's lots of ways to support us you can support us on patreon which is uh monthly support or you can do a one one-time donation 
Or heck, why not buy a t-shirt or a mug or a right. tote bag? And we're There's talking like plus a dollar. It's plenty of ways to support us, whatever you feel comfortable with. We appreciate it all. It really helps us out. And we really do spend it on the blog and the podcast. That's right. It keeps us going, keeps the site up and running, um, helps us, uh, you know, buy a better microphone than what you're hearing right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're, we're trying to keep this uh, a little better quality for you. Uh, so anyone last ra- uh, wrap up from each of us here? No, I love this movie. I, I honestly think that this is the, the one the one 18th century movie that if you're ever going to watch an 18th century movie, make it this one. Um, I, yeah, I agree. And I would put this in my top five, maybe top three of any historical costume movies ever. Ditto. I, I, I want to watch it again. When, <laughs> when are these guys get out of my house? I got to watch this again. Um, <laughs> Personal time. Yeah. Yeah, with a bottle of wine. And Anyway, okay, so now you've heard enough from us. We want to hear back from you. So catch us on Frock Flicks, and make sure to review us on iTunes when you, when you um, download these podcasts. We appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Bye! Bye! Bye!